So um, I wrote a book about free will, and I gave my first talk on the book, and I was ready to have my first question from the audience. And the person put their hand up. It was in Glasgow, by the way, the famously friendly city. Um, and the question was, I've been listening to you now for 50 minutes, and I'm more confused than I was at the beginning. And your job was meant to be to explain things and make them clearer to me, and you haven't. So that was a good start. <laughs> but then I thought, you know, well, what's this, what's this guy expecting? This is philosophy. Does he not know? You know Bishop Barclay's famous phrase that philosophers kick up a dust and then complain they cannot see. Um, now, I'm not that pessimistic. Sometimes I think philosophy does clear up con confusion. But a lot of the time, I, I don't think it does do that. I think perhaps what it does instead is it, it helps us to understand our confusion a bit better and to see it more clearly. Because actually, where we start from before we start philosophizing about things is often either a position of a excessively simplistic clarity. Things seem straightforward because we just got a ridiculously simplistic view of them. Or a kind of vagueness. You know, we haven't really thought about what life after death might be. or We just have a vague idea. And in either of those situations, if you then start to think clearly about it, I think it's quite naturally... Now, quite natural that things, in a sense, become more confusing, but you see the shape of the confusion, and that's important. And actually, interestingly enough, I don't know whether Sally Vickers would agree with this, but I think psychotherapy is often like that as well. It doesn't sort of like dissolve all the complications and confusions of your life, but it enables you to perhaps understand them a bit more. Now, when it comes to the morality or around mortality, I kind of think that, you know, if you don't find it confusing, you're missing something, right? There's something profoundly confusing, unsettling, unstable about our thinking about mortality. Now, it invokes very strong reactions. If you think about the big moral issues around life and death, around sort of, you know, uh, selection of you know, pre-birth selection, fetuses, abortion, euthanasia, all these things, a lot of people have very kind of very strong views on them. And they're looking for clear moral absolutes. Now, I think there are some things about the morality of mortality which are straightforwardly right or wrong. Uh, there are always extraordinary circumstances, but in almost all cases, taking someone's life without their consent is a, is a bad thing, of course, and striving to help someone to stay alive is good. But I actually think the way of thinking about it in terms of morality is sometimes kind of wrong, and we should be thinking more in terms of an ethical look at mortality and life and death. Now, that distinction between morality and ethics, curiously enough, isn't, isn't one that has a kind of standard definition in, in philosophical textbooks. But the, the way I see it is this, that if you think about morality, you're thinking about rules, you're thinking about principles, you're thinking right and wrong, good and bad. When you're thinking about ethics, you're rather thinking about how ought we to live? What's the best way to go about things? And in a lot of ethical issues, I don't think it's really a case of right or wrong, good and bad, sinful, blessed. It's more a question of finding a better way to do things. A, a, a very clear example, I think, of this distinction perhaps comes from sex, because 
you know, we get used to this idea of sexual morality as something which has an inheritance, partly religious one, in which we grow up, you know, this kind of idea that certain kinds of sexual practices are wrong, which is pretty much all of them, and one, one or two are okay in certain situations. And once you get rid of that sexual morality, you don't believe in that anymore, it might seem there's nothing more to be said about sex from an ethical point of view, but there is, because how we conduct our intimate lives is often very important to how well our lives go. But it's not about saying that's wrong, that's right, that's wicked, or that's good. It's just trying to find a better attitude, a better way of looking at things. So I think that if we think about attitudes towards mortality and the big issues around mortality, I think you know, we ought to be trying to think more in, in ethical terms. And I think that the attitudes we have towards mortality often do reflect our strong ethical commitments, our views about how we ought to live and how we ought to die. And these are often terribly contradictory and confused and pull in different directions. So, I mean, take, for example, what we consider admirable at the end of life. I think you can find examples, and probably each of us as individuals have found admirable people who are both what I'd call fighters, acceptors, and quitters. Right? David Hume is a very good example of an acceptor. If you read the account of David Hume's death by Adam Smith, you know, it's a great hymn to the sort of rational, even-tempered man. He was saying how he'd had a good life, and although he was dying as sort of quickly as his enemies would hope and as cheerfully as his friends could hope. And you know, he, he was someone who was just facing death, accepting it, and we go, fantastic, brilliant, that's great. But then you've also got people who we admire because they kind of choose to get out, perhaps earlier than they might have to. So they're, 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 they're the quitters. They just put up with it calmly. They actually willfully choose to exit. Sue Black, yesterday, if you were here, she talked about that 92-year-old man, Jeffrey, who has a very clear plan. that He's going to make a decision that at the time where he thinks he's just become too frail or he feels his mind going, he's just going to end his life like that. And I think a lot of people find that extremely admirable. But at the same time, we also often admire people who just fight to the bitter end, despite everything. And again, I mean, this may not be a perfect example, but I was reminded of this by Marion Coots yesterday when she talked about Tom, who continued sort of writing at a point where if you saw how ill he was, you would be amazed he still did. Now, I don't know exactly what the situation there was, but you certainly there's something very admirable we also find in people who, who push to the very end, beyond perhaps what most of us would think we would put up with. So, you know, it, it's a bit peculiar. And it gets the problem with that is we have those contradictory attitudes. But then when we come to think about issues like what's the morally right thing to do around euthanasia, for example, um, depending on what's at the front of our minds at our times, we might find ourselves pulled one, one way or another. You know, um, We sometimes sort of get afraid of the people who are too keen to quit, we might think. Although in other situations, we deeply admire them. I think there are lots of other contradictions around uh, attitudes to mortality, which depending on what situation you're in, you can be pulled one way or the other. Death, for example, you know, it, most of the times we think of death as like the worst possible thing that could happen to us. It's, you know, there are some fates worse than, de worse than death, but not many. Um, at the same time, there's a very strong tradition, you know, a philosophical tradition of saying that far from being the worst thing that could happen to us, death is nothing to us. It's completely meaningless. It's completely, we should be indifferent to it. 
So, you know, intelligent, sensible people, some of whom think it's the most terrifying, awful thing, others claiming it should be nothing to us. Take also ideas of autonomy around end of life. Again, I think a lot of us find ourselves thinking that it's really centrally important that people can determine, uh, their, make their own choices about life and death. And yet, on the other hand, it's not difficult to kind of uh, get a sense of how that can entail a kind of hubris, you know, and the idea that we sh should be masters of our own lives, including the moment of our death. Yeah, it's a kind of hubris. It's something that's not good. So again, the, the value of choice and autonomy, we can be drawn in opposite directions. Quality of life. Quality of life is another thing. Sue Black, again yesterday, she talked about you know, the life, the spirit, life of the, of the body. Most of us recognise there's a kind of a distinction between those two things and that what really matters about life is you know, the life which involves your consciousness, your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, your experiences. It's not just about keeping this lump of physical matter alive. And it, if we were to do that, if we were just to be able to keep our bodies alive without keeping alive some kind of mental, spiritual life, then that would be a bad thing. So, you know, so we have that clear distinction. And yet, on the other hand, quality of life, concern with quality of life, can very easily make us extremely concerned because we look at people who have in lots of ways a diminished quality of life or are judged to have a diminished quality of life and we're worried at the idea that society might somehow judge those lives to be of less value than others and again it's very touching yesterday Rebecca Goss talking about how she misses Ella her daughter who only lived 18 months and had a uh, uh, you know, neurological problems and you know, never grew and had that fully developed life, never enjoyed the full quality of life of a, of a normal child. And yet, in any suggestion that that was somehow a life of not a value is deeply troubling. So quality of life pushes us in other directions. And I think the final sort of contradiction is how yeah, the very question of whether or not we ought to face up to our mortality or not I mean, a lot of people have said this weekend, you know, we don't really like to think about death, do we? Although clearly we do, because we've gathered here for a whole weekend of doing it. Um, you know, people, we try and avoid it, we shy away from it, we we'd go away from mortuaries. So that's true. But on the other hand, can you think about it too much? And again, I think, you know, Rebecca was very powerful on this, I thought. She, her second child, Molly, she said how she felt she had kind of a, a duty to her child not to allow the experience with Ella to colour things too much, to have that kind of bravery to have the long-term horizon. Now, that's, that's a tricky balance, isn't it? Because, you know, assuming you're kind of immortal, assuming you're going to be here in 20, 30 years' time, I think is something which I think, generally speaking, isn't such a good thing. We should always be aware of the fragility of life. But what Rebecca really made me think about yesterday was that that concern with the fragility can become too much if you put it too much in the front of your mind that you know we could all die tomorrow how do you really have that long-term perspective so there are all these kind of tensions and and contradictions and i don't think we can really completely banish them get rid of them at all i think that would be a kind of mistake but i think we can ask what do these show what do these tensions show and i think that Perhaps in, in general terms, I'd put it in this way. There are some ways in which we cling to life too much. There are some ways in which we try to protect life too much. And in those ways, 
we're denying important truths about our mortality and so forth. But of course there are other ways in which we don't defend life enough either. There are other ways in which we can be too cheaply. So it's actually about, it's not about overall too much, too little. We've got to pick away at things. Ask, in what respects do we have inappropriate sort of attachment to, to life, an inappropriate desire to keep our, ourselves living, an inappropriate inability to let go and to accept our mortality? And it, those are going to be specific things. You can't just come with a global statement like we ought to just you know, be less bothered about death, we ought to be less attached to living. So I kind of want to, what I want to do in most of this session is actually bring you into this. I want to hear from you about this because I think that the range of experiences in a room is the only way to answer that. I, um, not quite lights yet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> shortly, shortly. This is actually an interesting point because in um, you know, medical ethics there's a whole literature around ethical expertise which is quite an interesting one. There's a question of what, what is an ethical expert and what is a moral expert. And I think most people agree that they're kind of really isn't one. The medical expert certainly isn't the philosopher who sort of gets parachuted in and says, you know, there's an ethical emergency here, let me tell you what to do. Um, I think I would much rather, if I had to just trust a, an ethicist or a doctor on a frontline decision about, uh, which involved an ethical dimension, I think I'd trust the doctor actually because the experience is there. But I think the ethical expertise comes uh, as a collaborative process. I don't think it's owned by any individual. And I think it is quite interesting that most successful negotiations at ethical commissions and reports, policies, they, they usually come out of broad consultation. So we're going to have a little bit of broad consultation here. But I think I, I want to just, before bringing everyone in, just make a few broad suggestions myself. I think that if you're going to think about those big moral issues around life and death, you need to start with having the kind of right attitude towards life, life and death. Sounds obvious. And I think actually the, the most, one of the most wonderful capturings of this is Dennis Potter, who's been mentioned a few times this uh, weekend, actually. Um, Joe mentioned that we had the poem to him, and Sam mentioned him yesterday, and Sam wrote a very, a very beautiful uh, article, actually, for The Lancet, in which he quotes this thing Dennis Potter said when he was dying, which was, he said that things are both more trivial than they ever were and, and more important than they ever were. Now, I think that's, that's one of the most sort of profound lines I think you're ever likely to read. I think that's not just something which... Um, should be felt perhaps when we're, we know we're going to die. I think that kind of tension is there throughout uh, all life and somehow understanding how it can be that life is perhaps the most precious thing and also in other respects such a trivial thing is, is, is extremely um, important. I did worry that that was a thought which perhaps only made sense if you, were, if you were an atheist, if you were one of those crutch-holding crutch atheists, um, and that actually perhaps it didn't hold if you were religious and believed in an afterlife. But I'm not so sure. And things that Rydian said just earlier kind of made me more sure of my uncertainty about that. Because I think if you have a religious faith, there's a sense in which sometimes it seems to leave all the important things in life intact in some ways. People are just as bothered about death just as attached to life. And if they're not, well, that only makes the whole paradox more paradoxical. Because if you do believe, you know, that there is a life to come, then that this life is a gift from God, then that's another profound example of how this is like extremely important, but also in, under the view of eternity, utterly, utterly trivial. 
And I think this sense of this sort of mismatch between the, the importance and triviality of life is um, partly, it's not just that thing that we have a personal perspective from where I'm standing, my life seems important, but if I imagine my place in the cosmos, it suddenly becomes trivial. Even from a personal perspective, you know, what seems to really matter now uh, often doesn't matter at all, even, even tomorrow, let alone 10 years, 20 years. If we could live forever, then, you know, would any moment have any importance at all? Uh, yeah. So I'm not sure. So but let, me, let me give you a few suggestions of some of the things which I think perhaps account for some of these contradictory attitudes. One is something, again, which has come up over the weekend, which is I think that the wonder of life, what makes life so wonderful, is, is because of and not in spite of its triviality. And again, a few comments made have kind of reinforced that. Alan, on the first morning, talked about how we find what really matters, he said, love, friendship and purpose in the banalities of life. You know, that's where things really, really happen. It's not always these big events. You know, what passes through your eyes is not your graduation. It's often the smaller things. Ray Tallis has also um, talked about how, you know, the reminder of the ordinary things in life is the reminder of what's of value in it. And I think that's a, a difficult thing. It's an easy thing to sort of say. It's an easy thing to go, yeah, that's true, isn't it? But to actually live it, I think, is hard. There's something very hard about accepting that actually... The, the most important things in life are, in a, a, another sense, quite trivial and banal. We kind of like, I think, perhaps want to find a grander purpose or meaning for our lives. We want to find a way in which our lives are capital I important. And actually, you know, just accepting and living with the fact that the importance just stems from small daily things, just relationships, little things that happen each day, is very difficult. And perhaps that explains some of our contradictory attitudes where we, we, we're really not sure where the value of life lies. Another aspect, I think, is the thing of life being process. I mean, Nick Lane, he talked about this from a biochemical um, perspective. But I thought his comment that the, the important question is not so much what is life, but what is living. He was talking there as a biochemist, but you, know, you can transfer that scientific question to the existential uh, domain, and it, it holds just as well, I think. There's a sense in which you know, it, is, it is living, the process of living, which is really important. And I think that helps explain a bit why you can have this idea that on the one hand, death is nothing to us, on the other hand, death is dreadful. Because death is nothing to us in the sense that once we are dead, there is no process going on. In that sense, there's nothing to fear about the state of being dead. But it's precisely because life is a process that we really don't want that process to end because it's in the process that we find all the value. And I think the third thing I'd point out is, and this is a real tricky thing about uh, morality, when it comes to choices we make about how we ought to live and what's better or worse for us, I think there's a very tricky relationship between personal choices and more universal judgments. And I think a lot of the time perhaps people make that connection a bit too strongly, or they, they make assumptions about what the implications are. So an example would be, let's say you, you, a couple choose for various reasons uh, not to go ahead with a birth through whatever method this might be, it might be a screening at early stage, or it might even be you know, genetic manipulation. They decide not to go through with a birth which is going to result in a child with this particular disability. 
I think the, the problem with that is that on the one hand, people can understand that, but on the other hand, they think it implies some moral judgment about or the value of people who have that disability. And I think it's different. It's different to make a judgment about what you think is the best thing for you to do with people who are only at the moment potentiality and how you judge uh, the value of people who are already in existence, who, who have these things. So I think, again, we have this kind of problem, which is that we find it hard sometimes to uh, accept the fact that in, in making a particular choice about what seems better for particular people at a particular time, we're implying more general judgments which aren't there. So look, those are just some thoughts. Um, but... I want the rest of the time to, to have some of your thoughts. Now, these are big questions, right? But I think we have an audience here with, which is an interesting, informed, intelligent, and bright one. So we can have the lights up at this stage. So <laughs> I, I suppose I want to hear from anyone about any thoughts at all on, on what it is which explains, if you like, some of these contradictions and, and why it is that... And in what respects, perhaps, do we have too great an attachment to life too great a fear of death, in what ways is that, is that appropriate and right? So this is a free-for-all, be open, be speculative. I, I'm not sure whether the answers I suggested were any good or not, they're just some kind of suggestions. So I'd encourage people to be as open with their own speculations as they can be. Okay, we have somebody at the back starting off there, yeah. It's really... Hello? Yep. It's really just to draw on something you said towards the end, it made me think of... A recent experience I had. So I'm a, I'm a trainee emergency medic, so a, a, an A&E doctor. And part of our teaching as trained doctors involves simulation teaching. So it involves a simulated patient. And in the simulated scenario where I was the, the team leader, as it were, we had a patient who was brought in who'd been stabbed, so a theoretical patient. Um, and as a real aside in the handover I was given by the, the paramedic in the scenario, we were told that this patient who was stabbed and who sounded very unstable was a Jehovah's Witness and didn't want any blood under any circumstances. Mm. Well, the interesting thing about the debrief to this quite stressful situation where this was thrown into me was that some of my team members in the, in the scenario had said that they were uncomfortable giving blood to this patient and I decided in this scenario that it was imperative that we give blood and it made things very difficult for me because people refused to do it that I ended up doing it myself and thereby losing my awareness of everything that was going on. The interesting thing about the, the debrief was that the people, the consultants who were debriefing me said that the point of the scenario was to put me and the team under as much pressure as possible and it was not around the ethics at all of the blood and so we didn't actually discuss that at all. <laughs> so it, it's a comment really on just the idea that um, th we, we kind of used an ethical, an, an impossible or possible ethical situation, I guess, depending on your view of things, to learn something else about decision-making and not really use the ethics at all, but have it there as a, a real pressure. Yeah, um, that's, that's a really interesting scenario, isn't it? Um, uh, Brother, can I see you now? Is there any other hands here before I go to that? Okay, take the microphone there. I'm going to take that as a contribution then, actually, for the moment, and let's just take some more thoughts, yeah. Oh, um, well, I'm curious about us today about always trying to preserve life at any cost. Like, when you're doing chemo and radiotherapy and sacrificing a lot of time early on, uh, sacrificing life uh, for a tiny bit of life later, about whether preserving life is always the best approach and whether it would be better to have a uh, sit-down discussion about the impact on taking away huge amounts of quality of life 
just for a tiny bit of extra time at the end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my impression is that a lot of people in the medical in the medical profession are concerned about that, and in fact, a bit stronger than that, a lot of people would say that it's patently crazy. You know, I don't know; someone will know the number. Shout it out if you know it. The percentage of money spent on your healthcare, which is in the last sort of six months of life, it's mate. Sorry. 80, apparently. I mean, it's ridiculously high. I mean, I think most people think there's too much resource put into that. Now, I think the point is, you see, again, I think that in terms of the confusions and contradictions, I think that the, the problem with addressing that square on is that the moment you start then to like take seriously the idea that this is kind of wrong, you get into concerns around like ageism. Uh, you know, discrimination against the old, or you know, and, and this, and there are lots of issues around. We have an aging population. There's a lot of concern in general that we're going to go down this slippery slope where the aged are going to feel like they are a burden on society, and that that's not going to be tolerated. And we don't want to do that. Now, I think that I don't, I don't think there are simple answers to the, the question, but I think that one of the real barriers to thinking about it properly is you have to be able to kind of recognise that that concern of the slippery slope is a genuine one, it's a real one. But it's, there's still a genuine question about whether there's too much resource going into it. And, and you've got to separate things out. If you can't separate things out, then you can't come to an accommodation. And I think accommodation is often the way things are, by the way. People often want a solution to a moral dilemma. You know, as though it were like a, a mathematical problem whereby if you only did the calculations right, you'd get the right answer. I think that ethics is a lot messier than that. And rather what you come up with is, is just the best kind of arrangement, accommodation you can. Because often you're dealing with competing interests. You, you have more of one good, you have less of another. You know, uh, and you can't get away from, from that. We had another person, didn't we? Yeah? Hello. Um, this is really just a comment from my own experience. Um, when I was young, I was, did loads of yoga and meditation, and it was because I wanted to experience the world incredibly intensely, and that was the great thing that I wanted. Mm. And then um, something terrible happened to me, and I finished up in hospital for two weeks, and it wasn't really clear whether I would ever get out of there. And sure enough, for that two weeks, without any yoga or meditation, I experienced the world incredibly, incredibly <laughs> intensely. <laughs> But I must say that since that time, I've never bothered with any yoga or any meditation. <laughs> and the reason for that is that actually when life is really boring and really drab and I just can't really be bothered with the whole thing, and I think we should all value boringness because what it means probably is that we've got a while longer to live. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, where were you, by the way? I couldn't see where... where yeah, up there was it. Yeah, OK. Now that, that, that's um, really great. We've got another hand down here, by the way, if a microphone could come around there. Um, let's take the other one up. Did we have another one up here? Yeah? That's me. Hi. Um, I'm a psychiatrist, and I've worked mainly with older people, particularly uh, people with dementias. So um, two things I want to say. Just the comment about the, the budget, really. Um, if you draw a parallel with the education budget, you could say most of the education budget goes on people under, who are <laughs> under 20. You know, so the fact that most of the healthcare budget goes on people who are over 60 is just a reflection of where our needs are at different times in our lives. Um, but the thing I really wanted to mention, which I think is, um, well, I, I think is very, very interesting, is the whole concept of mental capacity. So mental capacity is the ability to make your own decisions. Um, I work 
in, most of my work is to do with mental incapacity, uh, and we use the Mental Capacity Act a lot to help make decisions for people who can't make their own decisions. Um, and so I think there's a big um, philosophical and ethical decision to, uh, debate to be had about um, dying for people when they lack mental capacity. Um, and there are some arguments um, suggesting that actually the process of dementia and the process of getting delirium, which uh, are often present when somebody is dying, is nature's way of giving you a sort of smudgy, dreamlike experience that you don't have to think about a great deal. Well, yeah, okay. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But the mental capacity obviously is, 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 a, is a huge issue there. And it goes back to the point, perhaps I was suggesting that we have kind of concerns. On the one hand, you know, this is how we respect autonomy. We want people to make choices for themselves and everything. And we kind of think that when you sort of got to the stage where you, you know, you don't even have the mental capacity for that, then someone else has got to make choices for you. And that, that certainly leads to dangers, I think, concerns about uh, abuse and the lack of value for those people. Dementia is a fascinating one for this because... You know, a lot of people, when they think about themselves, people, dementia is one of the diseases which people most fear, and they fear the, the lack of, they, the dissolution of self, as it's called, and so forth. And yet, a lot of people who work with people in dementia do find that there can be an incredible sort of dignity in life, even, even at a late stage. Now, I think that, for me, I, I don't, again, I really don't have an answer to this one, but I think this is a very good example of an issue where we just have these sort of slightly, we have these very competing values going on. The, the desire to, uh, for personal agency to decide our own things and, and, and valuing our lives not just because they are our lives and not just because our body is living. And on the other hand, a real profound belief that we need to respect all life almost regardless of its capacity. And that these things don't balance up. And I think the problem is that a lot of people want to resolve that dilemma. The easiest way to resolve a dilemma like that is simply to decide one side has got the essence of it and the other is a red herring. And I don't think they are. I think there are really important things on both sides. And so, again, you, what do you do? You reach a kind of accommodation. It's messy compromise. We had a, a, someone down here, didn't we? Yeah. Hi. Uh, one caution and one comment. The caution being... Devil's always in the detail and costings towards the end of life might be about the preservation of quality and the palliative costs of a good death, and which is what we would all want. So I think we have to be cautious about saying, oh, it's a problem with spending so much in later life. That may be very appropriate. Uh, the next yeah. thing is about, in my experience, older people's approach to dying is that actually when you talk about risk, particularly for operative procedures, they're not worried about dying. <laughs> You know, the death isn't the problem, it's the living ill and the living disabled that uh, is more of the problem when mm. you come to that. That The, the risk of 50-60% of death is not a problem to them, it's the risk of what risk is it that I'm going to stay alive but much worse off than I am now. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think there's, there's a lack of openness about this debate, a sort of a sensitivity. Um, sometimes people talk about the, the threats to the aged. We, we, people are concerned about the vulnerable elderly, but sometimes it makes it sound as though they think that all the elderly are by nature vulnerable and, if it, and you know, unable to speak up for themselves and are bound to be sort of bumped off by relatives if we, we didn't protect them. And part of the honesty about this debate, I think, is that I've heard quite a lot of elderly people say that not wanting to be a burden is, is a 
perfectly good motivation. You know, why? That's a, that's a good thing. There are cultures, yeah, when resources are really tough in the past sometimes, there, you know, it's slightly, there's this mythological story in Japan of the ugly would go up the mountain and, and you know, just, just to die because they, they were no longer used to their families and they could see they were a burden. Now, that neatness probably never occurred in precisely that way. But, you know, having this question of, well, is, is, is there a point to this? Is, is it, is it honourable sometimes to actually have not wanting to be a burden as a positive reason to perhaps, say, refuse treatment or take something? Perhaps we're afraid of saying that because we're afraid that by saying yes to that, we're going to put pressure on other people who don't want to make that choice. But these things are real. I mean, you talk about the cautions. You know, when you, this is why things are really not pure. I have to finish up, I'm afraid. But um, the reason why things aren't pure with ethics is that when people consider moral dilemmas hypothetically and philosophically and with thought experiments, everything's very kind of neat. And if in a philosophical thought experiment, you don't have to worry about knock-on consequences. In the real world, everything's about knock-on consequences. You know, the slippery slope argument is often a very poor argument because it says, if you do this, it will lead to that. And there's often nothing inevitable about X leading to Y. It's how you manage it. But the fear that something might lead to something else is often very much based in, in reality. So we do have to take into account those things. Um, this, this has felt very, very short because there are such many big issues um, arising. I mean, all, all I think I really intended to do with this bit, because I was given this title, Moral, and I just thought there's no way you can't come in and sort of you know, uh, pontificate about what the morality of, of, of life and death is. But I just wanted perhaps to sow a few seeds uh, with you about how we might think of that and genuinely get some, some seeds back. So I think we could consider that a half an hour of seeding. Thank you. <laughs>